We're studying Matthew right now. Matthew is a, a book about king, about the king, about King Jesus, and how he's come to institute a kingdom. And how ever since he was born into the world, an announcement of his birth that we read about in Matthew chapter 1, that the world has been on notice that what came in humble packages, born a child in a manger, has put the world on notice that a new kingdom has come. There is a rule and a reign that is slowly taking over like a seed of a a mustard plant. There is a slow, tentacle-like, growing kingdom that will eventually envelop all things. That's what Matthew is about. Last week we saw in chapter 2 that the writer, Matthew, a disciple of Jesus, is taking great pains to show us how all that Jesus did was a fulfillment of what God had promised. And we're going to see a similar theme now as we turn to Matthew chapter 3. But the story, if you were just anticipating and knew nothing else about the Bible, the story takes a little bit of an interesting turn. There's a scene change, and more than that, you'd have to put up on the bottom of the screen 26 years later. You know, sometimes you're watching a movie and they've got to give those clues. You'd have a clue, just a heads up, as we start reading the third chapter of Matthew. It's going to say, in those days, and we have fast forward into the future, probably 25 to 30 years, no one knows exactly how much, and in order to keep telling the story of Jesus, Matthew tells the story of John the Baptist. So the story of Jesus is tied to the story of John the Baptist, and we're going to see that starting in the third chapter of Matthew. Let's read together 12 verses. 12 verses from Matthew chapter 3. It says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire." Let's pray just for a moment. Father, please help us. We know you, or rather have come to be known by you. You've given us your spirit. Once having been blind, we see. Once in darkness, we walk in light. And so, help us to be those kind of people here this morning. To not grow dim in our sight. To not creep back toward darkness. We want to see marvelous things in Scripture. 
We want to understand these things to walk in what we proclaim to be true. So help us in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a, a task this morning that is, I think, twofold. One is to describe John the Baptist, and there's some wonderful descriptions here in Matthew 3 for us. To describe John the Baptist, and then secondarily, to be faithful to his message. To describe John the Baptist and be faithful to his message. His message is going to be repent. Repentance is the message of John the Baptist. And so if we get through this morning, we have a little less time than usual because of the, the kids coming up. But if we get through this morning having described and understood the role and the person of John the Baptist... And then more than that, we've wrestled truly with his message. Then I think that we had made good progress in the verses that we just read. So the first thing to do is to describe this whirlwind of an unexpected man. I mentioned before that from Matthew chapter 2 at the end until Matthew chapter 3, there is likely 25 plus years that have gone by. A good reminder when you read your Bibles, it's, it's often chronological, not always chronological, but even in the chronological moments, it is not all at the same pace. Sometimes between one verse and the next, there's one minute, and sometimes between one verse and the next, there's a hundred years. In this case, it's chronological, but it is not immediate. It's 25 years plus. And that means there is a reality here where Jesus has lived an obscure, faithful righteous but otherwise completely unremarkable life behind the scenes. We only have one instance between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. We only have one instance in all the Gospels, it's in Luke's Gospel, that describes anything about Jesus' upbringing, his childhood. We don't know if he used hooked on phonics. We don't know if he watched Sesame Street. We don't know if his parents, what their mode of discipline was. We don't know what kind of schooling they gave him exactly. But we know one thing, when he was 12, that he was left at the mall, I mean the temple. When I was a kid, it was terrifying to thought of being left at the mall. And for anyone under 30, a mall is a place where you go to shop. There's hallways, it's under a big building. When I was a kid, that seemed like a big problem, being left. And Jesus had an experience like that. He was left at the temple. When they came back days later, they found him interacting with the high priests, or with the priests and the scribes, concerning the word of God. The rest of Jesus' life, from very small toddler and the promise and fulfillment of him fleeing to Egypt and then being raised in Nazareth, we'd have very little about his life. We don't know if he used his miraculous powers more often. The, book, the Gospel of John tells us that had we written down all that Jesus had done, the books, the world itself could not contain So we don't know exactly what he's done. It leaves a lot to the imagination. And perhaps it's one of the things that we need to reckon with as we come to the Bible. And that is that God has not given us an exhaustive biography of Jesus' life. That's not the point. The point is to present to us truly the Messiah, to give us the full arc of redemptive history so that we have enough to truly grasp God and to walk with him, but not an exhaustive biography. More than that, this should be obvious. But God is not determined to speak in detail about every possible thing that has happened on the earth. You may hear that as a critique of the Bible sometimes. Well, why doesn't the Bible speak to X, Y, Z? And the reality is is that there's a lot that we can, even sometimes I think in a kind of holy curiosity that God's given us in our minds, wonder about, but God has remained silent. 
We don't know what took place between this end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, except that Jesus lived faithfully, dutifully, and righteously with his family. He was tempted, as you and I were, probably by siblings or schoolmates or competitive endeavors. He needed food and water and sleep. He lived human life to its fullest, yet was perfectly and utterly righteous. And then, around age 30, Matthew picks up the story and says, you can't tell the story, and maybe I would say this, you can't tell the story of Jesus' mission in the earth without J.B., without old John the Baptist. I'm going to do my best to describe John the Baptist, and it's, there's full of color here for us, so it's not too difficult. A couple of things about this. It tells us that John the Baptist came preaching, and this word preaching is more of a New Testament kind of word, but I think it mirrors in some ways the ministry of prophets for the Old Testament. I talked to someone after the first service, and they said, you know, John the Baptist is kind of a throwback, and I agree with this, that after 400 years of silence, John the Baptist operates in a ministry like the prophets would have by proclaiming a word of God. So John the Baptist comes out of nowhere after 400 years of silence and begins speaking as a prophet. It tells us that he came from the wilderness of Judea. This was off to the west, south and west of Jerusalem. There's, I think it's aptly named the wilderness. It would have been a kind of mix of barren, small little trees and desert with not much going on. This is a podunk, many people probably in the cities thought kind of backward and far away place that was only fit for a cult-like group of people to hang out. That cult-like group of people, at least uh, maybe cult is too strong, that sectarian group of Israelites, in other words, the Qumran community, is likely what John the Baptist came from. They were a fastidious, committed clean living, holiness longing for kind of crew of people. And John the Baptist comes wandering out of that wilderness and begins prophesying. It tells us in verse 2 that his message is not a message of popularity or not a message of affirmation, which honestly is often the burden of prophets. Everybody thinks it'd be great to be a prophet until God says, all right, go insult them. Tell them they're the worst. Tell them to change everything or they die. And it doesn't sound so exciting anymore, does it? So John the Baptist comes out and he does not say, affirm, affirm. You're all wonderful. He doesn't waterboy them in his ministry. Isn't that the thing where he says, you can do it? Except in an accent. He's not saying, you can do it to everyone who's around Instead, he says something that's at the very heart of what it's going to mean to come to God truly, and that is to understand the idea of repentance. Repent, he says. Change your mind. Change your ways. Change your heart. That's the message of John the Baptist. It tells us, according to Matthew, that this is to fulfill, that he is an Isaiah Isaiah fulfillment as an Elijah-like figure, which we're going to see in a moment. He quotes from Isaiah chapter 40 there, that he is the voice of one crying in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord and to make his path straight. In other words, Matthew's saying, John the Baptist is a fulfillment of a promise that is made to the Old Testament 
that there would be a prophet-like person coming to prepare the way of the Messiah. Now, Israel was prepared for this. Anyone paying attention with a religious background would have said, we're in for this. We want a prophet. We want a religious leader. We want someone to make a straight path for us. Our path's been kind of meandering. We have no power. We don't have much going for us here. We would love a prophet, but my guess is they did not imagine it like John. So Matthew's writing, and an audience is looking, and they're saying, okay, I'm with you, I'm with you, prophet, prophet, yes, someone come, and then verse 4 comes. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. Now here's my guest. I'm not too up on, you know, turn of the millennium fashion, but my guess is that a garment of camel's hair would have been something different, noticeable, and probably odd. Otherwise, he would have just said something like this. Now John was clothed, which... But then again, would have made you think, well, what is he normally, right? <laughs> like, why do you have to note? If, uh, if someone asks how my day was, I don't normally say, well, I was clothed. So the garment of camel's hair, right? The garment of camel's hair was likely unique and different. It set him apart. It showed that he was not from the in crowd. Nowadays, though, fashion is sort of weird. I saw a picture of someone wearing a full lion's head on their dress. I thought, wow, John the Baptist got nothing on that. So he's got a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, which nowadays feels pretty normal. I have a leather belt around my waist. I don't know about you, but maybe back then they were like, what a weirdo. He doesn't have cloth on his man dress or whatever they normally wear. He had a leather belt around his waist, and then what he ate was also odd. His food was locusts and wild honey. So they note his, So Matthew notes his Dress, his diet, where he came from, the fact that he preached like a prophet, and all of these things meant that he was not what the establishment or the elites of the day expected. He is a precursor to the idea of, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And yet, because of God's redemptive plan, this guy... I don't even know what you'd call him. I think if, I was, if this was written in the 60s, they would say he was a beatnik-like figure or something. Or the 70s would say hippie or some kind of thing. Or 80s, he's a punk rocker. Or 90s, I don't, MC Hammer Pants. I don't know what it would have been, like Zubas or some kind of thing. I don't know what it would be, but this guy, despite not having the pedigree or being from the right place, because he is at the right moment in redemptive history... It tells us in verse 5 that his ministry takes on great success. And everyone goes out to him. And though it's an odd message, repent, people are moved to repent. Josephus, who's a historian writing around this time, who we often take extra-biblical context clues from because he was a prolific and very accurate historian around that time, actually wrote more concerning John the Baptist's ministry than Jesus's. So in that case... John the Baptist would have been like, you too, and Jesus would have been smashing pumpkins or something. I don't know. Like, name a band that's like, well, kind of known, but not that much. According to the people who were in the know and writing the histories of the day, whatever John the Baptist was, he made an impact. And people were rushing out to be baptized and confess their sins to repent. Now, there's already been two strikes against John the Baptist in the eyes of those who were religious leaders. One, he didn't go to the same schools that they went to. He's not a prophet like they wanted him to be a prophet. 
Two, his message is offensive. And then third, this is going to be the thing that really gets him in trouble. He says that repentance is for everyone. He says it doesn't matter where you were born or what your parents were, because there is the people who are in the know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he says to them, don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Here's what they basically said. No matter what else happens in life, we're fine because we have the right lineage. There's a tempting religious trapping here. Oh, I'm totally fine because my doctrine's right. Or I'm totally fine, I'm a Baptist. Or I'm totally fine, I'm Presbyterian. I'm totally fine, I'm Methodist. I'm totally fine. Do you know who my parents are? And what John the Baptist does is he cuts straight through all the religious trappings of what else could, anything else that could have been trusted in and said, no, 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 here's the thing. Repentance is for everyone. There is no in crowd that has gotten over their desire or their need to repent before God. You see, the idea of repentance, as cross-cutting as it is and as biting as it is, you could get over it if you believed that repentance was that thing that all of those horrible people over there ought to do. I would be wary of the the volume of the use of repentance in your life and how often you apply it outward rather than inward. It's not as though the Pharisees and the Sadducees would have thought repentance was a foreign concept. They just believed it belonged out there, not with them. And John the Baptist comes and he says, probably not in a southern drawl, but he basically says, you know who needs to repent? All y'all. I will forever thank the South for their grammatic contribution to his second person plural. Plural, it's hard word to say. When I grew up, my grandpa used to say, you guys. You see how much worse that is? Well, how are you going to speak to someone in second person, plural? Leave it to the south. They got you. John the Baptist refused to let anyone off the hook to believe that in their own self-righteousness, that somehow they had graduated beyond the need for sincere repentance. More than that, he says, it's not going to be what your ancestry is, and it's not going to be merely your religious knowledge that's going to have you on the inside. If God wanted to, he could create children from these stones. God is sovereign over who's in his family, and he is choosing, through the ministry of John the Baptist, he's choosing to reiterate again, to say, here's the path to me, repentance, and there is no other. No one gets to make up, this isn't a choose-your-own-adventure book of religion. I'm really pulling deep from my childhood now. This is not a choose-your-own-adventure, you guys ever read one of these books? You fell down a well. Choose one of the next two options. (laughs) Like, grovel, Wine and die. If so, close the book. Or whatever. Or option two, yell really loud for Lassie. Or whatever it is, and you'd go on in the story. What John the Baptist is trying to tell these religious leaders is this. You must repent. You must come with a sincere heart that says that I am not in charge of my life. You must let God lead and confess your sins or you are lost. There is a not even very thinly veiled, in fact, not veiled at all, threat to the established religion. He says, the axe is laid to the root. And I'm going to baptize you with water. This is a symbol. 
This is a symbol of a good thing, of a desire for repentance, but I want you to know that you need a deeper change than that. <clears throat> one who is coming after me. I think that means not only chronologically, but someone who will follow in my footsteps. Coming up next week as we look, Jesus will be baptized. He'll submit to the baptism of John the Baptist. He says, someone who's coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. I think it's so deliciously like human beings. John the Baptist comes and he's a little strange and he says this message, he's prophetic, and he has all the success and he says, now wait, just so you know, don't make too big of a deal about me. I'm simply pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the point. And so what does Josephus record for us? That more people stuck with John the Baptist and forgot about Jesus. Adventures in missing the point could be a subtitle to the human experience. So that's John the Baptist. We know that he has fulfilled a promise to not only be a prophet-like figure who is coming, but a specific prophet. John the Baptist, it turns out, fulfills the thing that Israel was waiting for, was for an Elijah-type figure to return. Wherever a Passover meal was being shared at this time and place, they would leave an open chair. Because the promise and the hope of God's people was that prior to the Messiah coming, Elijah would return. That was what they believed. Elijah would return. So their Passover meals, thinking about rescue, remembering the removal from Egypt, they would leave an open chair so that Elijah could sit there when he returned. And this description of John in verse 4, camel's hair and belt, it's not just because he's odd, but he's walking in fulfillment of God's promises. We read very clearly in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8. Let me remind, me, remind you as I read 2 Kings verse 1. If you want to really love and come to know and understand the New Testament, I would encourage you to dive into the First Testament. If you know the New Testament and you read it, you're going to see Jesus clearly. You'll have everything you need to grasp him. But my guess is, is that it'll be like watching it. It's still in color, but it's like 480 resolution. And then as you read the Old Testament, you get all the way up through it, it's like someone switched out your TV and you're saying, oh, I'm seeing more clearly now. Is this 720p? And then you start to read through Kings and you're seeing these kind of things and eventually you're reading in the Psalms and you're seeing Jesus everywhere and you say, I'm, I don't even know what the latest is. What is it, 80,000k? I don't know what you'd be. The point would be these are connected. Don't leave the Old Testament behind. This is what 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8 says. And they answered him, he, this is speaking of Elijah, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. So Matthew was writing, and it is not lost on him that the people of Israel, especially the Sadducees, the Pharisees, those who were paying attention, were looking for and waiting for Elijah. The description of Elijah when he came on the scene, kind of out of nowhere as a prophet, was he wore a strange hairy garment and had a belt of leather. And now Matthew, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later, further down the arc of redemptive history, introduces John the Baptist and says, you know what, he's wearing a garment of strange hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. And he spoke prophetically like Elijah did. Later, the disciples will contemplate what's happening with John the Baptist. Spoiler, but he gets killed, so they're not sure what to make of the whole thing. They know that Jesus is saying he's the Messiah, but they're, they're saying, shouldn't we have waited for or seen Elijah? And in Matthew chapter 17, we record this, it's recorded this exchange. 
The disciples asked him, asked Jesus, then why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So John the Baptist is a forerunner. He is an Elijah-like figure fulfilling the promises of God to make straight the paths of the Christ who would come. And in order to understand, now that we've discovered who he is and what figure he is, we need to consider his message. His message is not complicated, though I believe it is one of the most difficult things that Christians, non-Christians, human beings alike face on a daily basis. And that is to live with an authentic spirit of repentance in all things. The repentance that John the Baptist gives has a few different elements to it that should be pondered by us. He builds a case for repentance by citing a few things. The first thing that he cites is that they should repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That becomes a major motivation. He says essentially this, if you've been living according to the standards and the rule of this world and this place, you should change because a new kingdom is here. I think this is a fair statement. He says to them, hey, if you're driving a car that's broken and doesn't get you anywhere, stop. Hey, if you're following math that doesn't add up, stop. He essentially says that everyone must be ruled and you should realize that there is a new rule that has landed. In other words, he gives them information. I want you to note that. Repentance for them is based on information. Their eyes needed to be opened. They needed to be struck with the reality that there is a king and a kingdom that is to be received by them. Repentance often starts with a change of mind. The very word in the Greek and New Testament is change mind. It's of your mind that is going to change. It is to agree with God on what he has said. God says something is good. Repentance means that if you used to say it was bad, you say, God, you know what? I've changed my mind. I agree. That is good. So repentance can be and is about mental assent. Sometimes the best thing we can pray is, God, open my eyes to the areas that I am displeasing to you. We are self-deceptive at such deep levels that sometimes we simply cannot see. You remember the story of the prodigal? The prodigal is just wrestling with life. He's eating the pig slops. And then it says that he came to his senses. Something happened in his mind. He remembered and he saw the whole world come into new focus. He had cataract surgery. Or he had a lens replacement or something. And it's although he saw in a way that he hadn't seen before. This is a first step to repentance. We must be able to see what God desires us to see. Secondarily though, John the Baptist says, repentance is not merely about mental assent. Not merely. It includes, we should seek to understand. When we open the Bible and we see something, we should say, I want to agree. That's a good mental assent. But he condemns the Pharisees and the Sadducees and tells them, I don't think you understand repentance. Now, you know what they might have said? We understand all religious concepts. 
We're the smartest. We went to school. We have the degrees. We have the info. And another religious trapping is mentioned here. That repentance is not merely mental assent. It is not enough to know right and wrong and to even be able to articulate it well if you are powerless to actually change the things that you're saying. So repentance now has a combined picture in our minds of not only changing our minds, the things we see and think, but changing the direction that we're walking. You've probably seen this before, but the idea of repentance is I'm walking in one direction. Something strikes me. I'm awakened to a new reality. I'm confessing what I know to be true. And then I'm saying I'm turning and I'm walking in a different direction. Your life bears fruit. That's the way that John puts it. Bears fruit in keeping with the change of mind. And true repentance has not been gotten to until you begin to see the changes in life that, that bear fruit in keeping with the change of your mind. Have you ever been at the place where mental assent is fine? It's just that you can't change? You ever felt that helpless? You say something like, Gosh, I know this is terrible for me. I know it's unloving. I know I'm selfish. I know I'm anxious. I know I'm list out the entirety of the thing. I just can't change. And there comes a point when you realize yourself that merely knowing, you might be the kind of person who just has a sense of it, I think this is wrong. Or you could have explored the contours of that sin down to the level where you have a 17-page outline about all the ways that it's wrong and bad. But you just keep walking. Repentance is the miracle granted by God when mental assent of what is true and agreeable is met with the ability and the power from within to actually change. Repentance is the Homer Simpson hedges meme of the, new, of the Bible. You ever seen this? There's a little clip from an episode of a show. Homer walks forward, he sees something, changes his mind, and then just completely backs up and goes the other direction. He disappears. Or maybe you could imagine a little pet who's sure that he wants to run outside because of all that fluffy white stuff out there. It's called snow. And then you open the door and he goes out and just immediately turns around and says, no, I changed my mind and his mind change was met with life change so that he went the other way. Now here's the thing. I actually think for many of us, and perhaps the longing that's created in anyone that's been listening to John the Baptist is that you can have all the right information. You can even attempt to say, I'm going to just white-knuckle it and I'm going to change. I'm going to turn around. I'm going to be different. But you find yourself merely going through the motions. And it can be wildly discouraging to see repentance, to imagine it, and to fall into the same trap of sin again. And you might get to the point where you say to yourself, how is it possible to repent like this? How could I ever rid myself of the, the hypocrisy of proclaiming what I know to be true, but, but harboring and hiding and being entrapped by these patterns of life? And this is why John the Baptist gives us not just two things concerning repentance, not just mental assent and not just change of life, but the reality is that the true repentance will be granted to those who Jesus receives. That ultimately, he says, here's what's happening. I'm here 
by the symbolism of water baptism to show you the need of repentance, to warn you of the need of repentance, but ultimately to drive you to the reality that unless you are changed from the inside out, unless there's a greater power than mere religious trappings, you'll never repent the way that you ought. And so he says, woeful sinners, saddened partial repenters, coddling, discouraged, half-righteous people. There is one mightier than I. There is one who will come and grant to you a kind of repentance that bubbles up from the inside out and slowly, perhaps not immediately, but slowly over the course of time, the hope is that Jesus, through spirit and fire, will give you an ability to not only mentally assent and not merely go through the motions through white-knuckle grit, but from your soul to have eyes that can see and not be blind, to have a heart that beats with life, not be dead. He will give you true and lasting and real repentance. And this is the gift of the Spirit of God. We've considered the figure of John the Baptist. We've listened to his message. Let's not be like those who miss the point. What is being shown to us here is that there is one path to Jesus, and that is the path of ongoing repentance and none else. I used to play a lot of Risk. You ever play the board game Risk with buddies? We had some of our most insane epic battles around one place on the map, Australia. You know why we always fought for Australia? There's only one way in. And then if you think you're fancy and you get Australia at the beginning, you realize, wait, there's only one way out. It's a one-path place. And what John the Baptist is saying is this, there aren't multiple kinds of religious people. There's not those who inherited the ancestry. There's not those who were smart and got there by their brains. There's not those who have a good willpower and just gritted their way to righteous things. There's only one path to Jesus and that's it. There's only one way in. You can't circumvent it. It's repentance or you don't get there. Jesus lives in Australia. I mean, that's the cheesiest way to end that illustration. But that's where he is. You can't get in any of all the benefits. All the benefits come to you Only if by the Spirit of God you are willing to confess that you don't always see and you have not agreed with what God has said is good. You need a change of your mind. Romans 12 tells us one of the wonders of the gospel is that slowly by the transforming and the renewal of our minds, we become like Jesus. You need a change of life. You need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You need to live in a manner worthy of the calling that you've been given. And all of this will only be possible if the Spirit of Jesus takes hold of your life and gives you the power to be transformed. Now, one more little personal tip from this. Oftentimes, we who care most about godly things lack the language and the practice of repentance. Because we have forgotten that when God calls us to repent, it is not to punish, but to forgive. 
And for many of us, especially in religious circles, like the, maybe the Pharisees and the Sadducees, especially in religious circles, we've been trained by a kind of performance mentality that says, I have a hard time. It's hard enough to confess or to realize my own sin, but I don't want to bring it out anywhere because I will be either judged or I will be pushed away from. The reality is, is that those who understand the sweetness of Jesus come to see repentance as their source of life. You would say something like this, I need to repent because I need to feel and know the love of my Savior. I want to confess my sins because Jesus said only those who are sick will be healed. So I want to encourage us to dare to live lives of repentance. To be aware of the reality of ongoing sin within us as a community. And when someone is given the Spirit of God to begin to describe a change of mind... To say something like, you know what, I've been angry and I see it as a sin. It's not my personality. I'm a cranky, cynical, angry person and I want to change. To not say to them, yeah, you really should change. You hurt lots of people, you psycho. But instead to say something like this, I want you to know that that's the Spirit of God working in you. And I'm so grateful for that little degree of change. Let's run after that together. Because Jesus meets people who are angry and anxious about the world and cynical. And he can change their hearts. Let's be the kind of place that says repentance is the path to Jesus. We all want to get to Jesus, right? Then let's be bold enough to repent amongst one another. When someone confesses something that they've been hiding on to for years and years and years, to encourage them and say, that must have caused a lot of damage. And I'm sure that this has been a difficult thing to do, but for right now, I want to tell you, repentance is a sweet thing. It's pleasing to God. Let's take this to Jesus together. And if we're not a place like that, if we've constructed some other path, if we invite people in and introduce them to a Jesus and give them a different path to the Savior, we have not given them a different path. We've sent them off into the ocean. They will drown in trappings of religiosity. So let's not have adventures in missing the point. John the Baptist is a, such a cool figure. Like modern day Elijah, prophet getting to come down from the wilderness, cool costumes. Like he's, a, he's an amazing guy. But the point is, is that he commends to us repentance. Maybe a point of application would be just to walk through it, something like this. Where do you need a change of mind? What have you told yourself or you're continuing to cling to that is a pure deception? What do you not see? Pray, God, by your Spirit, help me to see. What narrative do you tell yourself concerning your hopes or needs or desires that is just simply not true and needs to be surrendered to God? Or maybe you'd say something like this, you know what, I see myself in the mental ascent but difficult to change category. What could God meet you in today? What do you know to be destroying you or the people around you. But you need new power. You need change. Even degree by degree. You need to set these things before God. And say you know what I'm just not going to. I want to stop walking that way. And give them to him. And at the end of it all. Let's learn to rejoice together in the confession of sins. Because Jesus is gracious and kind and he forgives. He is faithful and true. He forgives all of those who confess their sins to him. He cleanses them of all 
unrighteousness. Let's not let repentance be a dirty word. I think that's the ministry of John the Baptist. Repent, he says joyfully. Come to the waters. Let it point you to Jesus. Let's pray.